on a, a new series that is being interjected with some guest speakers. Uh, but that's great. It was wonderful to have Wendy last week uh, sharing with us. She did a great job. And the week before, uh, Will, uh, the other end of the spectrum of age, uh, speaking uh, and uh, stepping out in faith. We've started a little series that um, we've called Standing uh, Strong in the Storms. And it's uh, based and drawn from and around First Peter. So that's where we're going to read from tonight. And uh, Phil, two week, three weeks ago, did a verse. One verse. We are going to try and attempt 900% more this week. Is that right? Nine verses? Yeah. All right, here we go. Ambitious. Anyway, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to, the obedi- to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. When Jesus is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want, us, uh, I want, if you can, just for a moment, to uh, suspend the reality of the now and, uh, and just imagine being a, a resident of Pontus. Where's that? Well, think about Turkey, Bithynia, Cappadocia, where Turkey is at the moment. And there aren't uh, cellular devices and there aren't emails and there's no TV and... No even radio FM. It's a hard job, isn't it? For most of us, we grew up in that era. Before even Betamax. What's that, says Sam? What am I driving at? The believers in what we now know as Turkey received a letter. And it was from Peter. 
Peter they knew of because he was one of the, the disciples, one of the first that Jesus had come, follow me, one of those who had, uh, had seen Jesus right from the outset of his ministry in, in and around Galilee, and the, the fame and the infamy of Jesus grew and grew and grew, and they tra- crisscrossed and traveled backwards and forwards into Jerusalem and out, and gathered and gathered, and the controversy grew. Great celebration, great joy, great advance of goodness. The oppressed set free and the sick healed and and even some dead raised. But alongside that, a growing awareness that not all was celebrated. And that this Jesus was opposed and questioned and undermined. And eventually arrested. And they knew about Peter and John and James and the others. They knew. They knew of Peter. And Peter sends them a letter. A letter that would be passed from place to place, from home to home, from person to person. A letter that speaks so powerfully into their experience. Peter that they knew of, who had great victory and Great foot-in-the-mouth moments. Peter, who in the gospel stories that they might have had circulated, they may have, have had some, uh, some, some of Luke, and they may have had Mark, and uh, maybe John stories that John had had, although those probably weren't drawn together till later. And maybe even some of the, the stories had, had come across, and, and they knew that Peter betrayed and denied and feared and hid. And even on the great resurrection morning, stumbled around, not quite sure what the women told him. Really? Risen from the dead? They get this letter. They get this letter from Peter, and it brings great rejoicing. Written by an apostle. An apostle. Uh, it's, it's just worth noting that, that Paul isn't saying he's... Uh, Paul, Peter, until we preach from the other bits more often. Peter isn't just saying that uh, he's the apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. The implication of that, as we know, there are others, uh, Paul and... Um, and the others who were with Jesus and had been sent out. And by this time, uh, there were obviously those who were, were was, as we read at the beginning of Acts, the, uh, the kind of the 12, Matthias kind of elected to include them. But then as things developed, there were other apostles. Romans chapter 16 references some of them, those pioneers of faith. It's interesting that Peter, the letter, doesn't just write to the Jewish believers but actually here is writing to Turkey that the spread, the influence, the impact of the gospel is already making waves far, far around. So this letter arrives. And these opening uh, verses in this opening chapter of his letter to these believers are wide and broad and deeply significant. You could say they're theologically dense, yes, but they're not there to trip us up or cause us to scratch our head and think, what's all that about then? 
They're there to be deeply encouraging and reassuring and speak to those who are struggling, to those who are being harassed and hard-pressed, to those who are finding this walk with Jesus isn't all easy. The replete in and amongst all that Peter writes is saying, it's tough, but lift up your gaze. So in these opening verses, he, he reminds these believers scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and, and so forth, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, some really, really important points. So we've imagined back there. I want you just to think about the here and now. If you go into a a party or an event, a gathering, you've been invited, you don't know anybody and you're in that awkward icebreaker kind of moment of getting known and and being known and those, those kind of awkward bits of conversation. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Are you married? What's your job? Do you have children? All that kind of stuff. How do you define yourself? See, Peter is wanting to just express to these believers something really fundamental and foundational in the outset, in the setting of his opening phrases about how we're defined, of how do we belong. So much of of what we do is, is defined by numbers, by an address, when was the last time you filled in the form? Now, obviously, your name goes on there and your date of birth, a series of numbers and, and your, your location, your address. And don't forget the postcode or it'll reject it on the online system. And sometimes we've got to put in the national insurance number or maybe even a, an email address. Maybe we have to start thinking a bit more broadly about who are you as defined by education? Who are you as defined by your age? Or how much... Are you worth? Who are you? Where do you belong? What's your nationality? And the list goes on and on. How do you describe yourself? Who are you? Male or female? What socioeconomic grouping are you? What ethnicity? What race? So on and so forth. So much of this world seeks to define us in certain ways. But Peter, from the outset, resets the clock. He doesn't write to them and say, Peter, uh, uh, the former fisherman, who is given the keys by Jesus, and the gates of hell will not prevail, and I'm the rock. And it was Simon, but now I'm Peter. He does say, an apostle. But the first and foremost focus is of Jesus Christ. And to God's elect, he says to these believers... Sisters and brothers, men and women, young and old. He says this. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace to you. He doesn't write to them and say, who are you? Well, you're the Turkish outpost. 
He doesn't say to them, well, you're the, the Gentile believers in, in that kind of northern bit of away from Jerusalem. He doesn't address them and say uh, and speak to them about their moral background or their social status or their wealth or lack of. But Peter says, you are the chosen of God. That you have been chosen and set aside, that you've been sanctified for obedience Gifted the Holy Spirit and sprinkled with the Messiah's blood. Who are you? It's a little bit like that reminder, that 101 for us as sisters and brothers now. Not to forget our basic identity. Who are you? Now we would make for an awkward party, uh, Halloween maybe. When you gather with the other parents at the gate with your, your bag of sweets and all that going around and you're introducing yourself. Who are you? I'm one of God's elect. Maybe try it, see how it goes. Or at uh, that Christmas, uh, Christmas works do. Who are you? Where are you from? Well, I'm, I'm one of God's elect. Sprinkled by the blood of the Messiah. I mean, it, it could be a, a little bit misunderstood. But what I'm driving at is actually, it's easy to forget our, our kind of core who we are and define ourselves by all that other and forget the greater stamp, hallmark, definition. When I have the privilege of, uh, of leading people uh, in preparation for baptism and talking about baptism, what baptism means, I, I kind of talk about the five things, five main things that it, it means to be baptized as a believer. And I, I talk about the five fingers on a hand and I kind of remind them that to, to learn them. And every time, if you can, devotionally, at times when you're feeling doubt or despair or struggling or wondering, where is God or have I let God down or is God disappointed with me or uh, have I blown it? Have I messed up? What? What could God possibly want with me? Look at your hand, remember. I'm united with Jesus through faith. I'm washed clean of all my sin, that I'm confessing Christ, that he is my Lord, that I'm filled with his Holy Spirit, and I belong to his family. As a way of saying, this is who you are. As a believer who is baptized, as a follower, this is who you are. Peter, from the outset, underlines, highlights, declares it front and center. Don't forget. Remind ourselves regularly and frequently and thoroughly who you are. God's elect. Chosen. Not by accident, not by, oh, all right, then we'll let you in after. By foreknowledge of God. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, Christ Jesus, through the initiative and action of God. Remind yourself. Remind yourself. Let it sink in deeply. You're not defined by your failures. You're not defined by your circumstances. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, this is who we are. I'm told that in developmental studies, 
becoming self-aware and of who we are in relation of a child to its parent or parents is of utmost importance. Of that reinforcing of those bonds of love, of family. Something that happens implicitly with, for, for at least in the child's experience because of, of those young babies and all that doesn't, they don't really have that much cognitive kind of like ability to kind of work it out and, and work through abstract contact, con, concepts. But those who grow up to thrive will have had that deep impression from the early days. This is who you are. Peter encourages and says to us as believers, know who you are. Trust the word of God. Let it sink deeply. Because, as we will see, when the challenges and the, ch- uh, and, uh, the struggles and the suffering, and Peter knew of that himself and would and will know of it, probably executed under Nero. And as countless followers, martyrs, have said, I cannot deny who I am, and who Jesus is. Why? Because they had this deeply. Remind yourselves of who we are. And right from the outset, uh, Peter says, you don't quite fit. You're misfits. Um, you like those odd assortments of... Uh, of chocolates that have kind of been put out of the box because you don't, you're misshaped. I'm not saying you're mistakes, but he says that you're God's elect exiles scattered through. There's, there's another word, uh, translation of that word, which is sojourner. Do you know what a sojourner is? It's a funny word. If you are a traveler and you visit Paris, and you stay for a time, you're sojourning in Paris. Means you're just there for a temporary time, and then you're moving on. The Peter is is saying to these believers who are uh, rooted and established in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the will of the Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit, he's saying you don't quite fit You may happen to be residing in Turkey and these regions that you may choose to go to on holiday. Or you may hear about if you study some theology like the Cappadocian Fathers. But you don't quite fit. Not because of who they are, but because they are God's people. That they're passing through, that they are remaining temporarily here. But you will be moving on. I've noticed this as I've, I've seen new believers and I've journeyed in faith myself that it seems that this misfitting happens more and more. It happened initially with my family as I became a believer that I chose to go to church on Sunday because I wanted to be with God's people and they didn't. They were doing gardening and they had jobs for me when I was home from university on holiday and they're like, you've got to mow the lawn or brush the path or whatever it was or, you know, can't remember I said, no, I want to go. No, we've got things. No, I need to go. And it caused some tension. The, the virtue of now being a believer meant that there was a misfit with where I used to belong. And now it is different. 
So much of what Paul would write, and I do mean Paul, is teaching about what happens when you become a believer and now it starts to rub up against your husband or your wife who isn't a believer or your wider family. Or what happens when, when you're a believer and have a new set of ethics and, and code of practice and morals because Jesus come first. How does that work in business and in business relations? We become misfits according to the wider world. Don't be surprised. The more that we uh, step out with Jesus and grow more like him, the more we will find that there's a bit of jarring. As someone phrased it, when you go across the grain of the universe, you get splinters. We're not going with the flow anymore. Implicit in what Peter is writing about is don't be discouraged by that. See it as an encouragement. The more that you become like Jesus, the more those in the world will go, huh? I mean, think about it in the life and the story of Jesus. I mean, right as a child, as 12, he was in the temple and people were amazed. Like, this is a celebrity child. It's like a, he's, a, he's a super child in, in express edu- uh, religious education. They were astonished. And when he first burst onto the scene, people clamored to be with him. I was reading this morning the story of, of those uh, people who brought the man on the, on, the, on the stretcher on his bed and they couldn't get near, so they broke through the ceiling and dropped him down. People were all around. But as time went on, the nature and the character and the truth and the life that Jesus brought, brought friction with the world. They couldn't stomach it. Started to oppose and oppress. And Peter is writing to say, if that's the way of Jesus, if that's the way he has known, that's the way we all will experience too. As strangers and foreigners, that we live in two places at once, this physical location of, of the North Cotswold or Stratford or where, wherever you happen to be, that we are in our physical location, also citizens of God, part of this new kingdom, which is entirely different to the way of the world. And it's a bumpy ride, but know who you are of where you belong, and recognize that we're passing through. And the question comes then, so what's the purpose? Well, he has set us aside. He's called us out. Not because we're exclusive and better than, not because we're just a tiny few and the rest are going to hell in a handcart. Not at all. But as the Spirit of God works in us, as the Spirit of God calls to our spirit and calls us to that moment where we repent and believe, we are set aside as his people chosen for, with foreknowledge to become signposts to a new reality, to this new world that has come through the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's there in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us what? New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. New birth. We talk about new things all the time. We, we have a good night's sleep and we wake up and we say, oh, I feel like a, a new person. It's a new day. <sighs> it's a Monday morning. No, we don't do that, do we? Uh, 
But you kind of say it's a new day. Everything's possible, feeling refreshed. Or, or maybe you pamper yourself and you treat yourself to some spa treatment or a haircut or a new suit of clothes. I feel like a new person, perhaps. But this goes far deeper and in a far more radical way. Peter says it's new birth. I mean, Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, in that great phrase of, uh, for God so loved the world, but its context is the story of Nicodemus, this older religious leader who comes at night, maybe because he doesn't want to be seen or, or for whatever reason, or maybe just it's a picture of the darkness that this religious man was living under. I think he did come in the night, don't mishear me, I'm not saying it was metaphorical darkness, but it may have had its significance that way. He said, Jesus, how do we enter into this newness that you're speaking? Jesus said, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. How can I be born again, says old Nicodemus. I can't get back inside my mother. With God, all things are possible, says Jesus. But you must be born again. And that's what being God's elect is. That's what the church, as primary definition, is a saved and a born-again community. Those who have been given new life, who've entered in through the gate Jesus, who've been re-energized by the Holy Spirit to live thankful, knowing through the grace and mercy of God, it's all about him. And all I have done is simply trusted in his gift of life. That's who God's elect are. That the church is never just or simply a social club, though we do gather for social things. And it's never just an interest, a gathering of interested parties. Not at all. It's about new life bestowed by him. In a few minutes, we're going to come and share communion. And it's right that we recognize what it means. And, and maybe just a few sentences will help broaden our understanding and link between this passage and this meal. You see, this meal obviously speaks of death and life. Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. And this is uh, the cup that is in my blood and speaks of the new covenant. And it is shared for the forgiveness of sins. But remember, it was, it was instituted and gathered with the disciples as a new people, a new fellowship, a, a, a people in the upper room saying, just like in that first uh, kind of Passover, that rescue of God, where God was saving people out, saying you're no longer defined by slavery and object fear and of being nobodies. Now I am rescuing you and bringing you together to be my people under my lordship. It's about this saving action, this new birth that we all enter into. If you ever have the privilege, and most of us do from time to time, of going to a wedding breakfast, really weirdly named, isn't it, when it's in the afternoon? I never quite understand that. But it's like that first meal of the married couple. Whatever time of day it happens to be. And it's a great celebration. That in many ways, this meal is also a reminder of the wedding banquet, of the wedding breakfast of which we're all invited into and around because Jesus has welcomed us. He is the bridegroom. We become the bride through faith. This meal underlines and, as Peter says, speaks of the sprinkling of his blood 
that we have become a new people centered and orientated around Jesus Christ. That's who we are as God's elect, scattered and temporary and sojourning, but called together through him to the death and sacrifice of Jesus and the indwelling of his spirit and set apart, called out. This is who we are. This is what characterizes. And verse 3, he says one of the chief hallmarks of the people of God. Don't worry, I know there's nine verses I said 900%. We're not far away from taking this meal together. One of the chief hallmarks and identifiers of his people is that of praise. We can find many words to talk about God, but one of the best ways to talk about God and what he has done is through praise, of thankfulness, because God has blessed us in his mercy. No matter what the backstory of our existence, of who our parents were, or the start of life, or, the, or, or how we have been set back by this, or by that, or by the curious turns and the mistakes that we made along the way, now, through Jesus Christ, new birth, he has become our father, we are his people through Jesus Christ, hallelujah. Because of his resurrection. He goes on to say, and this is part of being misfits, is that we see in part that we are regenerated inside through the sanctifying, the the holy making work of the Holy Spirit, that we understand in Paul's language that the Spirit is a down payment, a, a deposit for us, but also with a sense of hope, of looking forward. That's in this meal too. When we'll no longer have to share it like we do, but we will eat with Jesus face to face. So as Peter says, who are you? Know where you belong. He moves towards, and this will become a recurrent theme in his letter. He says that there's a theme of storms. In verses 6 to 9, he says, reflect on the reality that the early Christians are suffering. We're praying regularly for our persecuted sisters and brothers that there is no disconnect between the first century and every century since. And this is what causes us to to struggle sometimes. Salvation and suffering. That we live in a world of triumph. I don't know if you heard uh, the President of America's statement today about being strong and saving the world through violent means. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad that in one sense that what was accomplished. But our world defines salvation as a victory of the strong, of the great overpowering the lesser. The superhero movies. Good triumphs through some expression of strength. And because we are conditioned by a world which always seems to celebrate again and again the victor, we find this juxtaposition of salvation and suffering really hard, but this meal puts them together. 
that the victor was the suffering servant. That the greatest victory that Christ won, that no one else could have accomplished, that God himself wrought, was willing sacrifice of the agony that he endured and embraced in order to bring salvation through becoming weak, entirely stripped of dignity, of any volition of his own, apart from that which he would submit to the Father. Yet in that greatest act of suffering, the greatest salvation, the impact of which is still resonant and life-transforming now. As we take this meal and break this bread and recognize his body broken for us and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, it is suffering and salvation because it's costly. Costly for Jesus as he bore and paid the ultimate price as as he lay down his life for his friends and his enemies or for all of us who were far away even before we became friends of God. Salvation was won. There's those curious phrases in in Paul's letters where he talks about, I count it as great joy to be counted amongst the sufferings of Christ, to participate in. And yet, as Peter writes in here, is to say to the believers, part of the road of being a belonger of God, of, of his elect, is also to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Because through them, Salvation becomes known. That as the world looks upon and as they see us as misfits and quirky at best or deeply seditious at worst, to be opposed and stamped out, yet as we endure, the light of Christ shines strongly and his saving power is made known. As we take this bread and drink this cup and are included and defining us again of who we are in him, know that as we participate with him, we will be sent out as his family, deeply assured that we are welcome, accepted and loved and chosen and held in the palm of his hand that he died to forgive us entirely and completely without a shadow of a doubt. But he calls us as his elect, to dwell in the here and now, a society misfits, for whom the gaze of our world may fall upon and say, I don't like you because of him. But you're in great company. Let's pray.